Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to prepare pastors and other church leaders in a biblically and confessionally faithful way for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by Dr. Peter Lee, Dean of Students and Associate Professor of Old Testament. Hey, Peter. Hi, Scott. I'm also joined by Dr. Tommy Keene, Associate Professor of New Testament and Academic Dean at RTS. Hey there, Tommy. Hey, good to be here. Great to have you. Also joined by Dr. Grace Sutanto, Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology and our man in Jakarta. Hey, Gray. Scott, great to be here. And also joined by Dr. Paul Jean, lecturer in New Testament at RTS and senior pastor of New City Presbyterian Church here in Northern Virginia. Hey, Paul. Hey, Scott. Good to be here. Good to have you. All right, we're talking this morning about devotions. We're talking about devotional life, spiritual disciplines in the reading of Scripture and beyond. I guess I could call it something like that. This is a question that comes up. Paul, you actually brought it up with us first uh, in our group text. Just the fact that students ask this pretty regularly, this idea of, hey, what do you do as a seminary professor or as a pastor to grow and to nurture and cultivate and be spiritually formed in your own personal life? Not just what are you doing to help others, but what are you doing yourself to grow in the knowledge and love of Christ, to see him anew. You know, the, uh, Psalm 119 reminds us, and by the way, Psalm 119 is like the devotional psalm, if you're interested in reading what the psalmist might say about engaging God's word in a devotional way. But Psalm 119, verse 16 says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. How do we as Christians who are also professors and pastors and, and ministers in other ways, how do we ourselves make sure that we don't forget God's word? How do we say so steeped in it that we are ourselves growing in our knowledge and love of Christ so that we can have that kind of well that we need to pour out onto others, right? So that's the question before us today, gentlemen, Actually, let me go ahead and start with you, Paul, since you brought up the question. Tell us a little bit about your devotional life. How does Paul Jean grow in the Lord in his own personal life? So, Scott, uh, if you forgive me, I'll sort of be all over the place in my answer. But I think what's actually really important is to look at this not in terms of like, and by the way, I don't think you were suggesting this in your question, but you know, to look at this not because uh, you're first a seminary professor or a pastor, but simply because you are a follower of Jesus, right? And I find that that has always been such an important theme for anyone in uh, quote-unquote professional ministry, to make sure that, like, whatever you're doing is just an outworking of, first and foremost, your relationship with Jesus, because, you know, we live in an age of authenticity and so forth, and somehow that comes out. Like, people know... It's basically you're only growing in the Bible if like you're just doing it to prepare for lectures or to prepare for sermons. And, and I think it's personally dangerous if that's why, you know, we're doing it. And so I think having that mindset is, uh, it actually feeds into what you do. So that's something that has been important in my life. Uh, the other thing that I think is really important, just the way I think about this is, uh, I, I actually do not trust myself. That's a huge theme in my life. And instead, I think Van Til, uh, he put it well. He said, you know, so much of the Christian life is learning to think God's thoughts after him, right? And you realize as you continue to grow in Christ, there are certain areas that you inevitably do that because it's popular in the culture. You know, like, for instance, uh, uh, in the church, uh, at one point at least, the idea that, you know, you never have sex outside of marriage, Right. So you're very, we tend to be very pietistic about those things, but not about other areas, uh, which the Bible has a lot to say about. And so um, I think I reached a point where I just did not want to trust my own thinking, but really uh, bleed Bible. I think that was said of Ventil as well. And so at least in the past five to 10 years, the way, one of the things I've done, because I think that our growth has to consist of a variety of spiritual habits, 
right? It's just regular discipline. One of the things that I've done that's very helpful is I've um, actually read less in one sense of the Bible, and I've really tried to memorize uh, chunks of the Bible. And so my practice is uh, each year I designate a portion of the Bible to memorize. Like this year, uh, I'm memorizing Galatians. So I usually follow the process of memorizing the letter. And then um, I I suppose you could call it journaling or note-taking. Just these thoughts that will come to me during my memorization. Some uh, writers will refer to that as impressions made by the Spirit. I'm not quite sure that that is the case, but that is a, that, that note-taking is very helpful. And uh, just chewing on the text for a season. And then the next thing is after I feel like I've chewed on the text for a long time, I begin to just write about what the text means, not even what it means to me, but what I think the text actually is saying. And then along the way, I begin to apply it. And so um, I don't do that in the sense of every morning I wake up at seven, and for about 30 minutes, I pray and so forth. Then it's a kind of continuum throughout each day, each week. And as far as prayer, I personally have found my prayer life has grown a lot because uh, I talk to God about the text, you know, and, and uh, I'm not always on my knees. Sometimes I might be cooking and just I'm thinking about something in the text. And, you know, I will pray to God and I'll say, well, I don't really understand what this means if you could grant me illumination. And um, and all in all, this practice of memorizing Bible, reflecting, and reflecting especially through writing, and then praying over the text um, has really served me well. So that is one of my main spiritual disciplines that I do, simply as a personal effort to follow Jesus and not as a professional outworking. Well, you mentioned, like, as a pastor, you know, wanting to have kind of that authentic personal time not everything is is directed towards the sermon i i get that i i you know in when i was preaching regularly one of the things that people encouraged us to do as pastors is you know have that kind of like personal devotional time that's not for the church if that makes sense i was never successful in doing that like just personally and never i was never able to detach my devotional life from like ministry i wonder what your experience was is that something you pursued or how did you have that kind of devotional time with the lord that's not just for an end for a goal i i think that i might have um misstated uh my approach and let me try and nuance it like Overall, my approach to life is very, uh, I might say, integrationalist, if I can make up that word. And what I mean by that is because I view my church not as a place where I work, but I really do view my church as my covenant family, there's nothing I do that doesn't have the church in mind in one sense. And so uh, even if it's like going on vacation, I inevitably view it as time that I'm away from my family. And so overall, like, I can't say that there is anything I do that um, doesn't have my church family in mind. Um, But at the same time, like, I think that C.S. Lewis or someone smart said something along the lines of, if you aim for a particular goal, you rarely um, achieve it. But if you aim for something else, that aim, uh, that end goal comes almost as a byproduct, right? And for me, one of the reasons why, like, I'll just always be studying uh, what, or I'll always be pursuing piety or just even in terms of, like, you know, I actually have very natural, unhealthy eating, like, uh, preferences. Like, I'm addicted to chips. I could eat that all day and certain beverages. But in many ways, the reason why I check myself is because I have my health in mind. It's not because I prize longevity, but I prize longevity for the sake of, you know, my family and my ministry and so forth. And so uh, what I meant before when I say I, I just study is somehow like whatever I study and whatever I process, I know it'll bleed into ministry, but I don't do it 
particularly for ministry. Like right now, uh, you know, I'm reading that bestseller that probably everyone has read at this point, like how to be an anti-racist. And it's not part of my job description to read, read the book, but I find that by reading the book just for clinical personal edification or enlightenment about race issues, uh, that will then bleed into my ministry in some shape or form. And so I think that to answer your question, I have a generally a kind of integrationalist outlook on life where my basic callings are, you know, my immediate family, my church family, and our seminary. And outside of those spheres of influence, I don't really, like, get occupied with other things. And so um, I don't do it for ministry, but I know that it will benefit ministry. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's how I generally approach things. I think that is helpful, Paul. Um, I think one of the things that helps us grounded when we're doing our own studies is precisely that desire for for us to be useful to others around us in our ministry, particularly. John Webster has um, a great distinction between curiosity as a theological vice and studiousness as a virtue, right? And I think one of the ways that we can enforce studiousness and avoid curiosity is precisely by thinking about how can I study what is beneficial for not just myself, but also for the people around me in my own ministry, in my own work, right? And what is beneficial, of course, is ordered towards God. How can I help others see God better and help help others imitate Christ better? And I think curiosity is the natural outcome of what happens when you divorce theology from the church, you divorce theology from ministry, from sanctification, and from practice, because then you're really just studying for your own sake, for your own uh, um, curious uh, mind rather than something that might be sanctifying for you. Uh, curiosity is classically advised because it is inquiring into something that which should not be inquired, right? The secret things belong to the Lord, but what has been revealed is for us and, and, and our children. But also curious, curiosity could just be about um, selfishly wanting to answer questions for your own intellectual gain or for your own itchy ears, right? Uh, that you might be inquiring questions and you might not like the answers to your questions and you might be inquiring questions and, and seeking for answers that aren't the right answers, but somehow they satisfy you for your own sake. And I think that's the kind of pathology, a, a disorderedness. Pathology is Boving's term. Webster uses disorderedness with respect to theology and its ends. And I think that's the kind of thing that might happen when a seminarian or a PhD student in theology is simply doing theology purely as an academic career, right? When you're just floating in, in different ideas and you're grasping at ideas, looking at ideas for their own sake. And I think when we were studying in our PhD studies, perhaps some of us, at least I, I know I felt this temptation, is that sense of I can explore these ideas, right? I can just kind of use ideas, explore ideas that might look attractive to me, but then once you're put into ministry, you're kind of shocked into, out of that world and, and, and reminded of the fact that you can't just explore ideas uh, because it interests you. You should be exploring ideas that might be glorifying God and sanctifying your neighbor. So I think this tethering to uh, ministry that Tommy and Paul, just you both talked about here, is actually useful. It's not at all a bad thing for us to be constantly thinking about how we use these things for ministry. Well, great. That resonates with my experience in, in preaching. I guess I had this ideal in mind, an ideal that was kind of given to me and recommended to me of, um, you know, personal devotions that are completely untethered, com completely detached from church life and from ministry life and failed miserably at, at obtaining that. Like it just, it was just a disaster. Um, and so just, owned it a little bit at, at some point of just like, okay, well, how do I capture, you know, the, the amount of time that I'm spending preparing for a sermon? How do I make that personal? And what I found was actually in owning that, and even, even though the text that I was studying or the, the book that I was working through in my devotional life was the same as the text for, for this week's or next week's sermon, I found actually that it helped me to apply the text to myself first, which actually made the ministerial experience more authentic because the first object that the text was talking about was me and my problems and, and my relationship to the Lord. 
I'm not sure that's the best pattern, but it was salutary to kind of think through the fact that, okay, even though this is kind of for a purpose or for an end uh, and, and is not an end in itself, nevertheless, it's advantageous because I am applying the text to, to myself before applying it to others, before seeing its usefulness to others, I see its usefulness to me. And I, I think that actually enhanced both. Yeah, I was raised in, in, in a good way, but in that kind of pietist strain of having a daily quiet time. And that during, particularly in college, when I was sort of coming back to the faith of my youth, that had become, and I, I realized it pretty early on, it had become kind of a, a legalism or a or sort of a, almost like a, a talismanism where if I didn't do my quiet time, I would feel as if the day wasn't going to go right or something like that, or I wasn't walking in the Lord. And of course, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of Bible verses that someone could use to proof text the importance of a daily quiet time. I mean, Psalm 119 talks about his regular sort of going to the Lord in this personal study. And yet I became struck by kind of incre incrementally struck by the, the, the fact that you can delve into that kind of devotional thinking and reading in a variety of different ways, kind of getting back to what we've been talking about, you know, and I remember it was during college, somebody gave me a commentary series that I started reading through as I read the scripture. And now suddenly it wasn't just me, reading a Bible verse, but reading the Bible verse with someone who's walking me through it to someone who's meditated is much older and has thought through these things. And then I remember, you know, really kind of a breakthrough for me was in seminary when this is 20 years ago. Now I was doing an exegetical paper for our new Testament exegesis class. And it was on Romans on the sonship passage. And I remember kind of in the middle of the night as I'm, jamming to get this paper done by the deadline, you know, it just kind of clicked in this really beautiful experiential way. And that was probably experientially and affectationally one of the most, you know, powerful devotional experiences. And even later, my, my New Testament professor at the time, he said, there is, there is a kind of unction that happens, isn't there? You know, and I remember thinking, yeah, yeah, there is. That's, that's a great way of putting it. There's an unction, you know, and, and I think I, I, as I grew in my understanding of myself and my understanding of God's teaching of God's word on this, all of these things that we're talking about sort of hit for me too. So it's encouraging to hear you guys say this too, as sort of a corroboration, you know, realizing that I want to be steeped in God's word, whether I'm being a dad or I'm at the gas station or I'm, you know, with, with my students in class, I want to be steeped in it, reflecting on it and, and kind of living it out. And yet also for me, there was an importance in cutting and breaking away from sort of a scheduled time. Now, I know for some people that's just blasphemy. Uh, but for me, having like a scheduled time in the morning very quickly became wooden and dry, not because I needed spontaneous worship only or something like that, but because I realized that how my day was laid out in a certain way, my personality is laid out in a certain way, that I have to like the psalmist, not forget God's word, right? To keep remembering it. And yet to do that through sort of, sort of more of a, of a whole life um, application of God's word. And, and it's, it's spilled into a lot of different areas. I mean, I think I can honestly say we start off early on about how we're kind of in a unique setting as professors and pastors. And I do believe that to be true. I mean, I, I realize as I talk to my friends who are consultants and lawyers that they would love to be able to get paid to spend time studying God's word the way that I do. And I realize that's really this great kind of amazing thing. I get to have this great deep experience of God's word because of my vocation. And I love that. And yet I also don't want to take that for granted because it can become, you know, just like if you're a student, the Bible can become a textbook and that's a dangerous thing. You don't want the Bible just to become your textbook that you're, you're using to find the right answer. You know, when you're paid to be a minister, when you're paid to teach God's word and to preach it, you have to be careful that you don't become a professional Christian, right? Where your faith is now just tied to your, your paycheck and making sure that you keep your platform and sell enough books. And I think that's a real danger for, for those of us in this line of work. But don't let the pitfall 
you know, kind of, uh, you know, shield you from the benefit too, that we actually get to do this as part of our job every day. And we don't have to make excuses for ourselves reading God's word and teaching it. Yeah, Scott, I actually had a similar experience in seminary. Uh, you know, it was working on uh, Hebrews 8 on an exegetical paper in, in my version of Hebrews Revelation and, and, uh, and studied in detail that uh, it wasn't just the academic questions in terms of Christ and his uh, Melchizedekian priesthood, but just the impact of what that means to me. Uh, I, I don't know. We definitely, I think, do ourselves a disservice to make that real rigid distinction between uh, academy and devotion. These texts were written for the encouragement and the blessing of God's people, and for us to not see it that way, and perhaps even receive blessing as as those who have faith in Christ, you know, we're making a distinction that probably shouldn't be there. Um, I do appreciate, Tommy, your question to Paul. As, as I was, by the way, listening to everything that you guys are saying, I, I just wanted to affirm and, and agree with everything. But, and, and Tommy, I appreciate your question that you raised to Paul about, you know, as pastors, do, do we have to have a separate, you know, strand of the word that we are reading distinct from the preaching of the word that we're preparing for our own well-being? Is that what we should do? Is that what is healthy for us? And I, like you, you know, complete honesty, struggled with that as well. But, you know, you know, part of our preparation as pastors is to, um, you know, as we're preparing the word and, and for our um, uh, preaching ministries, you know, we're not just, uh, at least pastors should not be just transferring data to our people. We share with them that which makes an impact to us that is meaningful to us as pastors, even real pastors. Uh, you know, uh, we can only really preach that which is genuinely meaningful and exciting to us. You know, when we study the text, that's what we try to do. And thus, the preparation of the ministry of the Word, when we preach it, should be an encouragement to us. It should be our devotional. I don't know if I'd want to make too much find a distinction and say, I have gained from this study of the word. This is why I want to share it with my people this weekend. I don't think we should, you know, that should be fine. And then feel badly that we're not having a distinct line, you know, of the word. If Paul's memorizing Galatians, which is phenomenal, by the way, and he finds that beneficial for him so that he wants to preach that to his people, does he have to now memorize Deuteronomy? You know, well, you know, all right, Joel, you know, because, uh, you know, it's just distinct now from his ministry. I don't know if we have to think through it that way. I guess uh, maybe one thing I just want to maybe share with you guys is that I find helpful for me. And I, like Paul, agree. I don't, I don't trust my own self and my own temperament and my own, my own assessment of things. You know, Luther, as you know, in our circles has been well quoted as saying that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves on a regular daily basis. What I find at times is that I struggle to even just do that. I, I need someone to preach the gospel to me. Uh, so I've become much more dependent on the preaching of the word as a devotional that I don't take just for that day that Lord's Day, but I try to carry throughout the week. This is part of the reason why, in addition to the church, I, I love sitting in your guys' classes, because in many ways it gives me an opportunity as a Christian, not as just a, as a academic or a, or a, a scholar or, or a professor to learn. I mean, I do that. There's no doubt about that. But it also gives me an opportunity to have the word proclaimed to me, so to speak, in a setting that I trust that is intellectually stimulating, but also spiritually invigorating. And I love that. So part of the reason why, you know, I sit in your guys' classes and lectures and why I love doing that is because I, I need that. I, I just need that as a Christian, as just a child of God, I need that to be reminded of, of who I am, what the Lord has done for me, the duties that are before me. And, and, you know, my thinking, like, for example, with Dr. Red, is particularly helpful because he's another Old Testament guy like myself. I read the Old Testament in a certain way. I hear him, and I think, I would not have seen it that way, or I've never seen it that way. And I keep thinking, he's probably right. 
I think I'm right too. <laughs> and, and it's just a way for me to kind of refine my understanding of scripture. And, uh, and it's been really great and helpful uh, for me in that sense. I think what gets missed in a lot of our discussions, perhaps in contemporary circles about devotions is the communal aspects, Peter. And I think you brought this out really nicely that you can't just preach the gospel to yourself. You need others to preach the gospel to you. And I think one of the primary ways that this happens is actually through Christian fellowship and Christian community. You know, uh, I, I don't come from a Christian family. Uh, my parents aren't Christians, you know, so I grew up in a very non-Christian context with a lot of non-Christian friends as well. And sometimes I would come back to those contexts um, every now and then, perhaps in holidays and things like that. And I remember perhaps at the end of a holiday with my family or with my old friends, I would think to myself, man, I really miss Christian fellowship. Uh, I miss talking about the things of God. I miss being reminded of the gospel. I miss being stirred up towards holiness, right, with my friends. And I think that we oftentimes untether our devotional life from community because we think about it primarily in terms of quiet time on our own, uh, on prayer time on our own. And we miss the fact that so much of Christian fellowship is necessary for your own devotional life. And when I'm ministering to folks, and sometimes, you know, after a very difficult conversation, uh, uh, the congregant member could say something like, well, I just need to pray about this difficult decision when the community is very clear to this person that, hey, actually, uh, where you're going is actually towards a route of sin. You need to listen to the word and you need to listen to the scriptures. And I want to say to this person, you don't need to go home and pray about this. You need to listen to the community and the scriptures, you know. And I think that there's this individualistic mindset that can cause us to say, well, this is just between me and the Lord. And I need to just get my own way cleared up with the Lord when actually the community helps us being in line with the word. And that I think has to be incorporated as part of our devotional life too. Are you yeah. in a Christian community? Yeah. I think that's kind of the conceit of certain strains of, and I have talked about this before, of pietism, right? It's, it's individualistic for one typically in the West, it's often rationalistic in that it's kind of like me coming to my own conclusions based on my own individual insight and autonomy. And it also tends to see the spirit as being individualistic. So the spirit only engages with you in terms of your own personal individual experience, right? You know, and, and, and I think that's, that's a great insight. Gray. I mean, I remember sitting in a, in a Bible study in North Carolina with a, a group in our church and, you know, a woman was dealing with just a lot of isolation. It was a young church. So there were a lot of singles in the church and yet that you could still as a single feel quite isolated, a single person, not being married, not being one of the young married couples in the church. And she was just being quite open and raw about this and was just saying that she felt God's absence and that he wasn't present with her. And another woman in the study spoke up and I think was just, to me, gave an answer that didn't occur to me and yet was a brilliant one. And that she said, is it possible that maybe God is with you right now in the church with all of us who are listening to you and talking to you? Is it possible that that's God who's speaking to you and being present? And you know, for me, that was one of those moments that I, I keep thinking back on in terms of sort of a change in perspective for myself and realizing exactly what you're saying, Gray, that it's because of my interaction in the church. You know, we often talk about how the church is hard and tough and difficult, and yet it's because of the interaction in the church that I also get to experience God in this communal way. And I get actually that may be the way that the Spirit is actually caring for me and advocating for the Lordship of Christ in my life is through those around me. I mean, I've noticed as a teacher, whether I'm preparing a lecture or a sermon, my experience of God's word and my delving into it is benefited, is corrected when I think of the community in which I'm serving. In other words, what I mean by that, and this is kind of now getting down to a technique, I guess, but I try to be prayerful for the congregation if I'm preaching or for the class if I'm teaching. Pray for them as I'm preparing, kind of taking breaks so that I'm reminded of them individually as human beings as I'm preparing the text. And I notice that that just, it just, I don't know if it's setting my heart in the right stance towards the word then or, or towards the application of it. But it reminds me, this isn't just me getting my show ready to take on stage, right? 
but yeah. this is me in dialogue with class and, con and congregation to preach God's word and to present it. Right. And it just changes. It's that subtle shift in how I'm approaching it. That has this deeply devotional aspect for me. I'd be interested in hearing um, each of you kind of talk a little bit about technique because, you know, I know people that do that are far more to, to, to use the phrase far more religious about their devotions than I am. Um, you, you know, our two hour personal devotions in the morning with prayer and yet at the same time seem to get nothing out of it. You know, there, there's no change. There's no progress. There's no, you know, they're completely ignorant of the word in some ways. And yet they're reading it for two hours out of the day. And, and I just wonder how does that happen? I, I guess put more positively, how do you make the most of the time that you spend in the word? What are patterns that, that are helpful for I, I don't want to re reduce it to this kind of language, but to make use of your time in Scripture. Tony, I think that that is, I mean, that's such a, such a great question. Um, I think it touches on something broader. Whenever we have these kind of discussions, we're always in danger of making generalizations, right? But I do think that one of the potential liabilities of a kind of DQT, daily quiet time approach, is that it's almost like we think that God has a new application or a new new word for us each day, right? Like, okay, this is what you have to do today, and then this is what you have to do tomorrow. You know, I shared with you my approach in terms of, like, just memorizing a book and then thinking through the book, because as a whole, I think that each book, each letter tends to have one particular focus. And in the end, I think that we become the sum of our habits. Now, obviously, this is not like a new idea. It's like secular, sacred literature they're all talking about this right and i think that the way we change is when we think about how a particular word is calling us to change not just in a one like one way like okay yesterday i spoke uh, unkindly to my wife and so you know the word is telling me go and forgive her but instead maybe the word is telling us like in terms of how we can really um structure a life where uh, we are letting go of bitterness, right? And I think that people don't change. And again, I'm speaking so generally and simplistically, but because we have these one-off application approaches, instead of thinking about nurturing a lifestyle that consists of a few good habits based on, you know, the gospel that lead to long-term change. And so I think that that is one of the potential liabilities of daily quiet time. Just to answer your question, what I do is I'm very much, I, some of you may have heard of this book. It was a bestseller. It's like uh, the four hour work week. It's written by, you know, um, this guy who, uh, you know, he has the most famous podcast in the world or one of the highest grossing podcasts. But one of the good things that he does talk about in this book is that everyone should be more deliberate about how he or she structures his lifestyle. Right. And so one of the things that I try to do like more systematically is each day I take about 30 minutes to assess my life in terms of what I'm doing each day and not just to improve it, to increase efficiency per se, but to see how, okay, this is what Galatians is talking about. And uh, how does this then change my daily habits, my weekly habits? And I find that when I look back, not over the course of one day or one week or even a month, but over the course of one year, the regular um, application of this to my lifestyle tends to be uh, more fruitful in the long run. Well, I think for me, if I can, um, I guess, share humbly and meekly, uh, one, one thing that... <laughs> one you say thing it's humble and meek, then it's not humble and meek. Very mosaic of you. Yeah. Peter, as the humblest person in the room. This is the meekest. All right. You know what? Let me start over. Can we keep that in? Can we make sure that that's in there somewhere? You definitely I think we, have to keep I think, no, I think you just cannot put the, edit that out. Uh, no, well, I think we just found our post. Uh, we have our post credit scene now. Thank you. By the way, E.J. E. Young, e. Young does say that Moses wrote that because, uh, by the way, yeah, E.J. Young's position is that Moses did write that about himself. 
but what he meant by that is the Lord's defense of him, not necessarily his own defense. And that's the reason why he's being humble. He knows the Lord will defend him. So, um, yeah, I can see Moses saying, I'm not going to write that. And the Lord's like, yeah, you got to write it. You got to write it. It's my defense of you. <laughs> Look, I, I just tell you what EJ Young says. Okay. <laughs> it's happened before. Um, like, no, you can't. You can't cut that. That can't go into the post credits. It's got to stay in the. Oh man, <laughs> I think I'll go back to the idea of reading God's word in community, and for me, that has been kind of groundbreaking for the last twenty-five years. And that's Sunday morning worship, hearing the word proclaimed. That's being in Sunday school. That's teaching Sunday schools that's being in Bible study throughout the week. But whether I'm doing it individually and I'm thinking about how I would teach it, not in the sense of, oh, this is really good. People really need to hear this. But how is this true in the way that we all need to hear? You know, that, that for me is, is hugely formative in the way that I do devotional work. But it's not just in my vocation of you know, being a teacher or a pastor. It's also in the area of being a dad and a husband, right? So reading the scriptures with my wife, um, reading them with, our, with my daughters. And that's actually for us where we t- typically memorize scriptures. As a family, we've been memorizing Psalms for the most part and explaining to them what a text means or hearing them reflect on it now, particularly as they're getting older and they're having these really deep insights that has been, again, kind of one of those moments that like my new, prof- new Testament professor might say, where there seems to be this unction, right? That there's this moment when you hear your teenage daughter reflecting on a scripture and realizing that her reflection is, is deeper and more insightful than yours was, right? That to me is also this, this really powerful reading the text in community. And so you know, we've done this. I mean, when the kids were young, you do this in different ways than you do when they're older. My, my older daughters now can take notes and reflect and talk. Um, but our younger daughters, I mean, we have five daughters. So the, the age range from five to, to 16. With the younger daughters, we've even done this thing mm-hmm. where we'll read a biblical text that's a story and then we'll act out the story, right? So that they can all kind of imbibe what's going on. And, and, and when you have to act something out, you have to read it, you know, five or six or seven times because you want to make sure you get the words right. You know, and I, I always think back on our daughters doing David and Goliath one time um, and how it struck us as we were reading the David and Goliath story that Saul is back in the tent, right? Getting his armor set up. Okay. He's meditating on his armor and David is depicted as running down to the field with his sling, right? You, you have these two different kinds of kings. One is focusing on all the carnal things, and one is running down recklessly as a young boy with his sling in hand. And that itself, like that kind of devotional reality of what does it look like to be a man after God's own heart, didn't really strike me until I was doing stage direction with my five, six, and seven-year-old daughters, you know. So I think this can show up in a lot of different ways. And that's not to say that I don't read the scripture by myself individually too. But even then I've noticed, I I find myself reading much more communally uh, as I've grown than I used to, which used to be this kind of meditation just on the words of scripture alone without thinking about wise commentary or what this looks like in community. I can testify to that too, and and seems like we've hit on a theme and a thread here with the the communal aspect, and I, I love it. It's not something I was expecting us to hit, but it's just it's been really helpful to kind of clarify and crystallize some some of my own experiences and and patterns. I remember when my my daughter, she was I think she was about six or seven. She said. Dad, I want a Bible. And I said, well, you know, you've got a Bible. It's this one here. And she said, well, no, no, I want a real Bible. She didn't want a kid's Bible. She didn't want to stay Bible. She wanted the Bible that the church uses. And so, so we bought her a Bible, pink, gave it to her. She asked, what, what should I read? And I said, why don't you read John? And then good parents that we are, 
we went downstairs and watched a movie while she read John. And about like 30, 45 minutes into the movie, she, she comes down and she goes, dad, I can't believe you would, she was like in tears. I can't believe you would tell me to read this. This is, this is, this is horrifying. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, this is like the most, she's reading John. Has she descended into Leviticus or something? Like what's, because she, she's horrified. And I said, what are you reading? And she's, Jesus is telling me that I have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And it dawned on me that she is reading this for the first time. She, she hasn't, she hasn't kind of Christianized it. She, ha she hasn't, she's, she's appropriating this text that she's read for the first time. And she's actually reading it better than I do, who've read it a thousand times, because she's hearing it as Jesus's audience would have heard it. She, she's hearing it with all the shock and the surprise and the, like, this does not sound right, that I have to eat the flesh and drink the blood of this person to be saved but she's hearing it afresh. She's hearing it new. And it, what, it, what it happened is I started reading the text that way and appropriating it that way. I read it through her eyes, through, through her mind. And I understood the text better as a result. I, I got the surprise. I got the shock and it challenged my assumptions about Jesus. And that's what reading in community does is it allows us to project other types of experiences on the text and to then read from the text uh, new light and, and uh, new revelation, even for us who have not shared in that, in that experience. And our, it, it, transferred the, it transformed the way I thought about family devotions, about my own time in the text and what I do in teaching and Bible studies and things like that, it, it, it opened up the value of hearing from other people what they think about the text and how it's impacting them and their questions that they have about it, rather than just me as an individual scholar thinking through what the text says. Yeah, Tommy, I love that story. Thanks for sharing it. Um, I think related to that is my experience has been not just with my kids, but one of the best parts about like, being at a church where you're actively reaching out to non-Christians is they don't hear, they don't read the stories the way that Christianized or church people do. And yeah, so as we've been touching on, it's not just reading with other believers, which is like so integral, but also just reading it with new believers and skeptics. You actually become, I think, a better exegete as a result. I think we've got a lot of various insights here, lots of different techniques and lots of different ways that devotions have gone for us. And I think the neo-Calvinist principle of unity and diversity is again, really helpful for me here to think about this because as we're seeing here, again, there's just a lot of different ways of doing devotions, of receiving theological teaching and meditating upon the word, right? And I think what Kuiper and Bavink are really helpful upon is understanding that yes, there's a, unity in terms of what we're all supposed to do as Christians. We're all supposed to obey the law, uh, please uh, the triune God, glorify him and also imitate Christ. And so, yes, be in the scriptures, make sure that you meditate on them and make sure that you uh, know this word and always remember this word, right? But at the same time, the way we appropriate that word will be very different. There's going to be a diversity of application, diversity of ways of applying this universal command, right? to meditate upon that word and to imitate Jesus. And this is something that Bavink uh, pulls out really well in this reformed ethics. He basically says that, yes, everybody has to imitate Christ, but everybody has to imitate Christ organically and personally. And so you have to imitate Christ in a way that is uh, expressive of your own personality and freedom. And he observes that in the biblical text, for example, the apostles don't all imitate Christ in exactly the same way. They all retain their personalities. You see this in the gospel narratives. You see this in the book of Acts, where the apostles all retain their distinctive traits and personalities and different callings, even as apostles called to different churches, called to different contexts. Paul was uh, a missionary to the Gentiles, Peter uh, to uh, the Jews and so on. Right. And so there's just different ways in which the imitation of Christ get, is expressed. And so 
getting back to, to Scott's discussion of pietism, this was Bavink's criticism of, of pietism in, in, in this particular section of reform ethics. He basically says that pietism not only wants to make one's own individual experience as the norm for oneself, and there's this fixation on what the self could do and a regulation of the self towards fixed laws, but there's also this kind of selfish tendency, Bavink is implying, to adjudicate other people according to the standards of the self. Well, I do devotions this way, so everyone else has to do devotions in exactly the way that I have performed it. And I think everyone here has expressed their own different ways of uh, doing devotions. And I think that's really, really helpful. There's a diversity of ways here. And I think another way that this comes out is that there's going to be different seasons of life. There will be seasons of life. You're a seminary student, you know, your lectures and your friends and what you're learning through classes could be a great way for you to meditate upon the word for yourself. But other people who, you know, they're, they're not students, their day jobs is not to teach the word, to study the word, then that's going to be looking very different for them as well. And, and seasons of life is going to be looking very different. There's going to be some seasons of life where you're suffering and you're just forced to lament and pray more than you ever thought you, you should and you could, you know. But then there are other seasons of life where the busyness, business of life kicks on. And it's not as if you're not remembering the word, but you're not just, you're not spending as much explicit time on the word as you might have been in other moments of lamentation or suffering, right? So I think unity and diversity is really helpful here as a principle. Yeah, that's a great point. I think there's something about not only realizing the situation that God and his providence has put you in and letting that also speak into how you're doing devotion, but recognizing that, 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 that you might have blind spots into how you're, you're practicing devotion. Okay. If we all, if I can use that phrase because you fall into habits from previous seasons, from previous times in life, you know, and I can think about times of mourning or of great anxiety where I do honestly feel I have felt great anxiety that's, that's kind of isolating, right? And those are often times that I'm going to find myself deeply going into scripture regularly because the community will have more of a difficult time. Now, I'm, not, I'm not, not breaking away from community, but it'll be more difficult to go into community in this, right? And so there will be times when you're sitting by a hospital bed alone and you're going to be spending long amounts of time meditating on praying through scripture. You know, that, that actually for me has been very helpful is recognizing the role of providence in my own life and how that creates context and opportunities for different ways of growing in the Lord. And also to kind of push back against my own view that there is, there is the threat then of, well, you just do whatever feels comfortable at the time. And I think that's where we with the psalmist have to be regularly going to the Lord saying, you know, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there's a hurtful way in me, lead me in your everlasting way. You know, maybe there are times when I need to have a really strict regimen because of the relative lack of organization structure elsewhere in life. Okay. And maybe there are times when I need to be gracious to myself in the area of regimen because life is not creating that opportunity to do that, right? And so I'm, do, I'm coming to the Lord in other ways. So I, I, I don't think, it's not like it's the wild west of devotions, whatever feels good to you, just kind of do that. Um, and yet also recognizing that there's a variety of ways in which scripture can be applied into the world because the world's constantly shifting and changing as are our own experiences of it. And so we need to be able to recognize the multiple different ways in which to engage in God's word. That's by the way, not to go in a totally different direction with this, but I think the importance of knowing church history and seeing how people throughout church history have engaged in God's word um, at different times and places and recognizing that there's a variety of different techniques at our disposal that have been kind of affirmed in church history and in, in, in the tradition. A lot of what I have tried to wrestle through has been more of kind of a self-identity thing to kind of help me with my own devotion. In other words, before I start doing it, I, 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 I wrestle with uh, identifying who I am. As I remember when uh, several years ago during my first sabbatical that I had here, it was an interesting time because, you know, I, I love coming into the seminary. I love interacting with you guys. I love 
the fact that um, I, I love what I do and, and, and I'm, I'm not sure why, but uh, I decided to take a sabbatical. And what that did was just took me out of what I loved to, to do and to, to be around. The one gain from my time away, if I can rethink back, was it really stripped me of, of, of every title that I had. You know, I'm a professor, academic, pastor, even real pastor that was gone. <laughs> you know, the, it, it just, it just kind of left me with uh, this thought of, you know, who am I and why is it that I do what I do? And it, it was during that time, I was just sort of reminded very basically, very simple, you know, before I'm a father, husband, or anything else, I, I am a child of God. I am a son of God. And it helps me to remind myself of this as I, as I read scripture, as I study it, as I uh, even, even hear the preaching of the word. You, you know, the, it, I, I fear that uh, a lot of men that we hear, uh, that, we, that preach the word to us, are mildly intimidated because of our academic background. And, and, I, and I purposely don't do that. I, I come and hear the preaching of the word as a as a as a child of God that really needs the gospel because I know my life and I know my weaknesses. So one, I, I mentioned it earlier, but I do want to stress how much I, I really do depend on the preaching of the word, the the objective proclamation of the word, and and why I depend on that on a, on the Lord's day, why I depend on it from from you guys uh, when I uh, sit in your classes. Gray, you ought to know I I, I sit in fellow colleagues classes not not i mean i remember doing that recently in dr Keene's class and one of the students coming up to me and saying don't you know all of this already and uh are you here to make sure he's he's on in line <laughs> you know making sure that he's correct and and my first thought was first of all no i don't know everything that's why i'm here secondly i'm not here to make him nervous to make sure he's online he wouldn't be here if he was off target uh, theologically i'm here to learn i'm here to gain that's why i'm here and if anything i just want to make sure that the stuff i teach is somewhat in lines with what is progressively with what's being taught in other classes i do that with my family you know on, on the lord's day after the sunday and we gather together for lunch or dinner and my kids know this. I will ask them, "What did you learn from today's service?" And uh, and I've told them right off the bat, you know, I don't know is not an answer. You have got to tell me something. Um, and it helps them to kind of learn how to listen to the word, and and so and it gives me an opportunity to discuss the word with them on any given Lord's Day. I love Paul. I love that you memorize scripture. I love that you discipline yourself to memorize something like. Galatians, and that is something I definitely want to take to heart and perhaps start applying. What I have done and that I found helpful is actually the opposite. Is and, and this is where Gray, I so appreciate you know your your idea that there is no cookie cutter way of doing things. This that we do it, and there's a variety of different ways that that sits our temperament, our scenario, or our struggles. But one thing that I find that I find helpful is actually to read lots of scripture you know, on any given Lord's Day uh, afterwards to sit and read like 30 chapters of Isaiah or, or you know, all of Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. I'm sorry, not that. I, anyhow, you know what I mean. And to just get an overall picture of uh, the scriptural word, I find it amazing how much you learn by just reading lots of scripture on one sitting. And, and not only uh, reading it, but another thing that I find helpful is actually to have it read to me, audio scriptures. It, it, we have to remember, I think, that you know these texts were written to be read by someone to their to their people. Very few people probably would have had copies for them to read on their own. And so, to have the word read to us is more in lines with the way that they perhaps were intended to be. They were originally written, you know, for that medium uh, initially. And so, to uh, when I go jogging. You know, I'll sit there or not sit there. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll listen to the word being read. Uh, my wife will, I actually picked this up from her because she does a lot of audio Bible. I mean, my goodness, she'll sit and have the go through scriptures two, three times a year by just having it read to her on a regular basis. And her knowledge of scripture is frightening. It's embarrassing. 
you know, we're, I'm the academic, I'm the one who should be teaching these things, but her knowledge of scripture is just so far beyond mine, just because she's gone through it on such a regular basis. And that, that knowledge is, is so powerful and so um, meaningful. But Paul, definitely your memorization that I, I find really challenging. I remember um, I spent a weekend with uh, Christians in the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. They are psalm singing only folks. And one thing, one a few people that I met are a couple of teenagers who actually memorize the entire biblical Psalter because they, you know, they only sing the Psalms. And and uh, there was uh, a couple of mothers who would share how, you know, their their uh, adult child was kind of roaming through the woods in the forest area, a bit lost, and how they would rec- recite scripture to themselves as a word of encouragement and comfort. And, you know, I mean, that type of scriptural knowledge is just invaluable. And, and so as much as we can be conscious of scripture, memorize scripture, be exposed to scripture, in whatever variety of different ways that we can is, is so helpful. There's something about processing information too. I think that's so important, Peter. And when you're hearing something, you process it differently than when you're reading it and even take it further. I mean, I, I remember in my PhD where we had to memorize a lot in terms of language and text. Um, I found that, yeah, walking around while memorizing helped me memorize it in a different way than just sitting at a desk or laying on a bed helped me memorize it, you know? And I think hearing God's word while walking or running, right? I mean, that's, that patterns the information in a different way. And I think you engage with it in a different way. I think that's really, that's, that's excellent in terms of just technique and devotional study. You know, Scott, I think you shared something and, it seems like we're all saying very similar things, and this might be helpful for our leader, our listeners in general, but especially our students, that we don't want to dismiss, you know, the, the past, like, ways that we grew up with and things that we learned. But I do think that even at the risk of some, I guess, relativistic tendencies, it's good to discern your personality. You know, you mentioned earlier that uh, I think you're more of a uh, night owl than, you know, morning person. And then also discerning the season that you're in. And I think part of the reason why we did this uh, podcast was to give, especially our students, some freedom to know that just because they're deviating a little bit from what they were taught uh, does not mean that they're not walking with the Lord. And, you know, you also said something that I have heard a lot of students and um, my church members say that if they deviate from the kind of quiet time that they um, grew up with, they almost feel like they're sinning or when something bad happens, that it's it's a direct result of failing to do quiet times the way they did. So that comment about just knowing your personality, knowing your season, um, I think that's super helpful. Well, and I think one of the major you know, messages that I think we're all trying to get across, and I know this from our own conversation outside of this podcast too, it's not like we're saying doing it one way is wrong and doing it another way is right. What, what I think I'm, I'm more aware of and have become more aware of over the course of my life is that there are pitfalls on all sides. For every person that I can find who has a regimented Bible study at 8, 8, 8 a.m., you know, every morning and yet isn't gleaning from it because it's become a legalism to them. You can find somebody who is so loosely organized in the way that they go to God's word and disciplined in it that they really don't ever do it unless it's, you know, completely comfortable and easy or something like that. And both work to your spiritual discipline, right? I mean, both, both work towards benefiting in some ways and hurting in others. Uh, I think what we're trying to say is, you know, be aware of the pitfalls and be honest with yourself. I mean, we opened this up, Paul, with you saying basically that the heart is deceitful above all things. And so we need to be aware of that and be going to the Lord and, 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 you know, really questioning our habits, questioning our practices, seeing what's helpful, what's not being honest with ourselves. Am I not doing something just because I'm lazy or am I not doing it because of something else? Um, is there another way to do it? And, and recognizing that even in church history, there's been a variety of ways to do things. I mean, you can go back to a time when biblical commentaries were all written in poetry, because that's how you said important things was by saying them in poetry, right? You know, 
And by the way, the Bible holds that view too. When you want to say something really important, you say it in a song or in a poem. Yet there are different ways of doing this thing that is spiritual formation. And we need to be aware of that, recognizing that humanity in its diversity is, is quite beautiful. And yet also, you know, that, that should be instructive to us in the way that we approach spiritual formation. What would you advise our listeners if they wanted to take some next steps and delving more deeply into this topic? I've personally very much benefited from the work of Tim Keller on this, um, not only his sermons, but also uh, I could recommend as well his recent book on prayer. Not too recent anymore. I think it was 2016 now or 2015. But that was a great book on prayer that I think anyone could pick up. It would be useful to them. Yeah, that is that was a really helpful book for me too, Gray. Um, I'd also point back to a uh, to a book by one of my professors, Richard Pratt, called "Pray with Your Eyes Open." That for me was very helpful in just getting out of breaking out of kind of some of the bad habits that I'd fallen into in my own devotional life, and praying with at least the uh, the amount of depth and. Um, diversity that we find in the scriptures themselves. I mean, the scriptures, I think even praying through the Psalms can be quite startling as we see what it is the psalmist thinks is worthy of being prayed for. (laughs) You know, uh, it it kind of breaks us out of our own prayer languages. But Pratt's Pray With Your Eyes Open is a great book, and it has the added benefit of being one of the few books that still has that really dated Christian cover of like a mountainside and the sun shining through the clouds. Um, So you can still get picked that up with its vintage cover at Amazon. And uh, I'd highly recommend that. For those that uh, struggle with actually like struggle, like I do with actually having a a disciplined approach to spiritual growth. um, I I did find Whitney's it's a classic, but spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. That's great. That's a great one. Is this, this is more autobiographical. There's a great book written by the uh, Baptist, John Blanchard called Right with God. It's an evangelical book or evangelistic book meant to be given to non-Christians, but it was given to me early on in my life and is just filled with Bible verses about why we should be, why you need to be a Christian. And there's something to me about going back to that, I think because of the autobiographical role, you know, the, that it played in my life and sort of drawing me back to the faith there's this devotional aspect, just meditating on those texts again. What is it that Christ has accomplished for us? Why do I need to believe? What does faith look like? And just meditating on the basics of the faith again can be um, greatly devotional too. I mean, I find John Calvin's commentaries and sermons to be very devotional. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the great ironies of history that he's thought of as cold and calculated in his theology. I think he's actually quite pastoral and, and emotional and, and reading him is not only deep, but will engage with your spirit. Actually, I was going to, I was thinking exactly that Scott is um, as we were talking about uh, uh, recommendations, it's, it sounds odd that, uh, well, I don't know if it's odd, but you know, we may not immediately think of something like Calvin's Institutes, but I remember, you know, one of the last things I did in seminary was was did a independent study on on Calvin, and my one and only, well, the primary textbook was his Institutes, and I was just told to read it from cover to cover, and then come back together with the professor of record and just talk about it, and, and that was actually the first time that I had done that in seminary, which, you know, you read pieces here and there of Calvin, but you never really read his entire thing through. And and so I did that, and 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 I was struck with just how pastoral he is, and how, you know, in 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 Southern California where I grew up, the mindset is if you is that Calvin and Calvinism is just a cold, impractical but theologically rich system. So if you really want that, then go to something like Westminster. But if you really want practicality of ministry, then you'll go to Talbot Seminary. And those were the two big ones when I was growing up. And after having read Calvin's Institutes, I just thought this this is a false dichotomy. Uh, Calvin is just is so careful in his theology and so precise in his distinctions. But at the same time, he is such a, a sensitive pastor 
And so I also would recommend that I, you know, Calvin's Institute, and it's written in such a way now where you can read portions of it. You know, it's not like you have to sit there and read a uh, hundred pages of Calvin. You can actually read uh, meaningful, digestible chunks at a time and set up in such a way that's organized in a way to to follow it. And and it's and it's great. It's scripturally rich. It is theologically profound, and it also really ministers to you holistically as a person. So. And now you know what everyone says. If you want the best of academic study and the height of pastoral ministry, you go to Reformed Theological Seminary. So it's a great <laughs> way to land the plane, Dr. Lee. And uh, Tommy Keene is doing a mic drop on his Zoom screen. We need to post these videos. In- well, it, it is embedded right within our vision statement as a seminary to have a heart for God, a mind for truth. I, I, I I think I got that right. And, and something I've always valued and, and, and appreciated about our school is that the commitment to both intellectual rigor and that heartfelt devotion. So, Yeah, and that's why it says um, asterisk mic drop at the end of our mission statement is because that's how we roll. Well, it's been great talking to you all, brothers. I, I, am, uh, I am deepened in my interaction with you, I'm deepened in my knowledge of Christ. Um, it's wonderful to sit with your teaching and to hear your thoughts. Uh, just coming from a different perspective is deeply helpful to me in seeing Christ anew. And I, and I just thank you for that. And thank you for your ministry to our students too. Uh, and this has been a fun conversation. Look forward to coming back um, in the weeks ahead. And until then, see you later. Go ahead, Gray. Right. It's, so I'm going to pivot with my comment because that was fantastic. And I didn't expect you to say that at all, Tommy. Your story was great. Um, so I can't follow up to that amazing story, but I can pivot the topic to something else. Uh, I, just, so, I thought the story was okay. I didn't think it was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. That, that I thought it was four and a half stars. It was, it was about 3.8. On Amazon, you know, you know, review. Yeah. 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 You wouldn't buy a but Tommy, it's the, it's, the, it's the way you tell stories. You're, you're a great storyteller because you're a comedian. <laughs> are you saying that the way he tells stories is better than the story itself, Paul? What are you trying to imply here? Good stories happen to people. I, who I'm, no, I'm just a big fan of Tommy. He knows that. Yeah, we all are. You're, you, you have the gift of encouragement, Peter. I, I think you're a big fan of everybody. Oh my goodness, that's been caught on tape. He's called me Peter again. <laughs> oh snap. We've got options here for post credit scenes. Right. Maybe maybe the whole episode <laughs> should be that. Just a just a blooper episode. Peter, I wanna I w I I'm curious to know how you feel that Tommy keeps confusing us. <laughs> just keep well you know, since the insight was so great, I'll take credit for it, sure. Let's just keep going. I, I like how slowly as we record, everyone's going to pictures. Everyone's getting off the live video of their face. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just Everybody's taking the vow of silence. <laughs>